Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome to another episode of the Old Believers series on the Liturgia podcast and uh, YouTube channel. Uh, this is episode five. I'm here with Justin, as usual, I would say. How are you doing? How are you f- doing fine, Philip? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. We missed you last time, and hopefully you're back for good. Hopefully. It's boring talking to myself. <laughs> I mean, as long as you don't, you know, get rid of me again. Yeah, no, I'll try not to. I'll do my best. Uh, so today, uh, we thought we would move much closer to the reforms and actually speak about the various people involved. Actually, we will speak about one of people involved today, but the next few episodes will be about a few people involved in the reforms. Um uh, we both believe it is vital for, for anyone trying to learn this to know some of the key people of the reforms. Uh, I think this, this is important so that it puts a correct context on everything and it, and it, and it explains people's motivations and, and somehow opinions and their backgrounds a bit, a bit clearer, I think. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. I mean, unless you know where these people were coming from, then it's hard to understand what they do. But at the same time, one of the things we have to be careful of is attributing motivation to individuals where we don't know from their own writings what the motivation was. Yeah, and I think uh, it's important to remember, especially when we speak about Patriarch Nikon today, uh, because most of my information about him and resources about him are actually from pro-reform historians, one might say. So it's from sources that want to show him in a positive light. And I think uh, Justin, as usual, will provide a more balanced approach than me in his comments. Uh, but uh, so we, as you already heard, we will speak about Patriarch Nikon. And I thought that it's, it's only fair that we, we simply start off by actually telling a bit about his life and where he came from and what led him to where he actually was. And uh, there are actually few people in church history uh, that have been held accountable for a single event to such, to such a big degree as, as Patriarch Nikon. And few people have sparked such passionate and, and wild debates and responses as he has done. Uh, as most of you probably know, the old believers often refer to the, to the, to what they perceive as heresy as Nikonianism. So he even is, you know, even his name is present in the name, in the names used in, in these polemics. Uh, and people who use the new right are usually called Nikonians. So Nikon is present everywhere in, in all of this. Uh, but on. you know, one of the things that is important to realize is that Patriarch Nikon would have more of a balanced view in something that we'll talk about and that even though the reforms are called Nikonian, that much of what came even went farther than he did. So that's something we'll talk about as we get deeper into the context. Yes, yes. It's good you bring that up. Opponents of Nikon usually bring him, bring him up as a sort of lover of power, uh, someone who, who wanted to climb in church hierarchy. Uh, well, many who actually followed the new ride would, would, would attribute Nikon with actually saving the church because he 
quote unquote corrected the errors uh, in the old books, as claimed, of course, by the by the pro reform side. I think whichever side one lands on, I think all can agree that Nikon is vital for Russian church history in one or another way. And, and he's very much important to mention and learn about. So I thought we would just simply go through his early life so we can get an idea who he really was. And the best information I was able to find about Nikon uh, in my about Nikon's early life in my own research uh, was was in a biography written by Sucherin. Uh, now it is important to understand before I go any further that Sucherin uh, had a clear devotion to Nikon uh, and his reforms, meaning he was pro-reform, a pro-reform historian. Uh, and Sucherin even suggested that Nikon was a saint. So I just want to get that out of the way and, and state that this is the sources I've been mostly using, not only, but a lot of what I'll be saying about Nico's early life is based on Shusarin's work. Uh, so we must take that into consideration. So Nico was a son of a, of a peasant farmer. Uh, he was born in the, in the year 1605 in a small village. He never knew his mother because his mom passed away right after giving birth to him. Um, we know that his stepmother mistreated him. Uh, which actually prompted him to run away from his home when he was 12 and actually go to a monastery, the uh, Makariev Monastery, where he actually became a novice uh, until the age of 19. Uh, when, he was when he was 20 and had already spent eight years in the monastery, uh, his father died. Uh, so that, made me, that actually made Nikon leave the monastery, go home to bury his father, and actually he got married. Uh, he then, after he got married, became a parish priest. So this is something that many people perhaps are not aware of, but Nikon was actually a married priest. Um, in his biographies, we, 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 uh, we learned that Nikon was, very, was described as very wise and talented, uh, even for his youthful age, uh, which very quickly drew attention from Moscow merchants. Um, and most likely it was thanks to their efforts that Nikon was uh, invited to Moscow to serve in a, in a quite popular church in Moscow. Uh, together with his wife, they moved to, to Moscow and they lived in the Nizhny Novgorod region, if uh, anyone is aware. So a few hours uh, east of the Moscow and then they moved to Moscow. Uh, Nikon and his wife had three children. Uh, however, all of them died at a very, very early age. Um, these events, actually made, Nikon saw these events as a sign from God that he should continue his monastic path. So what he actually did, he left his wife in Moscow in a convent and he himself went to a monastery in the north, uh, close to Solovki Monastery on the, White sea, on, the, on the coast of the White, White Sea or White Lake. Uh, I think it's more appropriate to probably say White Lake. And there he was censured and he became a uh, a monk. So it's interesting that Nikon was a priest before he became a monk. He was a married priest uh, who later then changed his mind. And we read, uh, as described by Shusharian, that Nikon loved the monastic life very. Uh, he loved the monastic life very much. And I think this could be easily argued. I mean, he went to a monastery when he was twelve. So I think definitely this perhaps is an, an exaggeration. We also read that he fasted very strictly and he read the whole Psalter daily and he made thousand prostrations and had many divine visitations in his cell. Now, uh, as Mayendorf points out 
in his own study on the subject, uh, this sort of piety was very common of this era. And uh, so on one, uh, from one perspective, we can doubt the account is trying to glorify Nikon, but we could also look at them simply as, as actually the, the standard practice among monastics in the early 17th century in, in Russia. This was somehow the, we will later learn that even the Tsar apparently also followed the same rules and would, would prostrate a thousand times every day and so forth. <coughs> now we also find out that quite quickly after Nikon became a monk, he actually left the monastery um, because he had a conflict with, with the abbot. So we already see in his 20s or maybe early 30s, it doesn't say exactly, uh, uh, some issues, some issues in regards to conflicts and, and fighting going on, which made him join a different monastery uh, where he actually, after a few years, became abbot at a quite young age. And uh, so he was, he was, he actually became an abbot when he was uh, under the years of, under 40 years old. So he was a young abbot. And, and we also learned that while being abbot at the monastery, uh, Nikon uh, very much contributed to, to raising, the, the monastery cultivated and thrived under Nikon as abbot and he raised its fame and the status of the monastery. Um, it is, however, important before we think that Nikon somehow made his way into that position in some strange manner. In old Russian tradition, uh, the abbots are chosen by the monks of the monastery. So by all accounts, he was actually chosen, despite his young age, as an abbot uh, of that monastery, which I think shows to us that he must have, through his everyday experience, monastic life, I mean, gained the respect and admiration of his, of his fellow brothers, or otherwise probably they wouldn't, wouldn't have selected him as, uh, as abbot. Uh, what do you think about that, Justin? Um, I mean, you know, it, it definitely think, seems to be true. And, you know, we know that Nikon was respected even by some of his future opponents, that he and um, the Archpriest Avakum were together members of the Zealots of Piety, um, which Salt early on and maybe you're going to get to this so if you are i apologize for spoiling where you're going um you know which sought to engage in some reforms of lifting up the life of clergy in russia um you know looking at the training of clergy and those sorts of things so you know obviously he was respected even then by people who would become his opponents and so you know we can't see that there was from this point that he was already seen as you know some sort of power hungry individual as he would sometimes be portrayed yes yes i think it's important to to think about what you just mentioned and realize that a lot of uh, negativity about Nikon, of course, stems, stems from what happened during the reforms and it's very easy to criticize everything about him. But I think we have to, like you just mentioned, look at it objectively. And uh, uh, an important event in Nikon's life that would, 
you could say perhaps changed the, the, the faith of the Russian church was actually when he met the Tsar, uh, Tsar Alexei. And this happened in 1946, not 19, 1646, forgive me. And uh, Nikon at that time visited Moscow to collect uh, money for his monastery. And the custom at that time uh, was that all abbots who visited the capital had to pay their respects and homage uh, to the Tsar, present themselves to the Tsar and, and say hello, sort of. Uh, at that time, the Tsar, uh, Alexei I, uh, which we will speak about in the next episode, was barely 17 years old. So he was, he was still quite young, perhaps not a small boy because people grew up quicker back then, but he was still just becoming an adult, I would say, becoming a man. Uh, and Tsar Alexei, reportedly being a pious man himself, uh, was very impressed by, by, by Nikon and their meeting. He was impressed to such a degree that he actually elevated Nikon to the rank of Archimandrite and, and made him uh, the abbot of the uh, Novospassky Monastery in Moscow. What is very really interesting here as a side note is that the Tsar elevated him to be an Archimandrite, not a bishop. Uh, so I think the bishop uh, eventually did the ceremony, but we can see the, the intertwine of church and state life and how, how the Tsar de facto made all the vital decisions and even small decisions like elevating someone to be an abbot at a certain monastery. So I think this sheds an interesting light on state and church relationships, which of course are very different today. So Nikon once becoming uh, the abbot of uh, of the monastery in Moscow, uh, impressed people with his spiritual life, uh, and especially the young Tsars, which is mentioned. Uh, he actually became one of the, and it, this is how it says in the sources, personal priest of the Tsar, however, not a confessor. He, he wasn't the Tsar's personal confessor, but he was in a circle of a few clergy that had influence on the young Tsar and his spiritual life. Uh, <coughs> and very quickly, uh, we learned that the Tsar, the young Tsar and, and, and Nikon uh, developed a very close bond, a very good relationship. Might even, we might even call it a friendship, even though, of course, there was a difference in, in the rank and, and everything. Uh, Nikon would actually personally very often uh, serve at the Tsar's private chapel. Uh, and they would afterwards converse for hours, we, we, we learn. Uh, so this made Nika very popular and to a degree also powerful because he had quite a lot of influence on the young Tsar and he, he had uh, an intimate access to the young Tsar, which actually was reserved for very few. The Tsar was rather isolated from the whole, from the whole society. Uh, so I think we can already see that this, this friendship, this relationship, perhaps I think it's better to call it a relationship, was flourishing when, when Alexei was very young. And um, it's interesting what it would develop itself to. And, and the question I personally always have is, is how much influence did Nikon actually have on the Tsar and, and how much it was actually the other way around. Uh, however, the Tsar was very young. So I, I would think that it would be the other way around. What, what do you reckon? I mean, I think that there are some ways in which the czar, or at least the court maybe, potentially not the czar himself, had influences on Patriarch Nikon because you do have the development of how the role of 
the Tsar and of Moscow was viewed in terms of orthodoxy in the world, which you spoke about when I was out, but that, you know, I think that probably those views in the court had an impact on how Pichyok Nikan thought and later on the reforms themselves. Yes, yes. I think we will come to this in later episodes, but I would agree with you that it was actually the court and the Tsar that influenced Nikon and not the other way around. I think that Nikon somehow finding himself in this space and in this position had to somehow comply a lot to the vision of, of the court and of, of the elites. I think that's that's fair to say. And uh, go on. And I mean, I think also that if we look at what happens later with the falling out between the patriarch and the Tsar, that we see that apparently the patriarch's influence wasn't too great because when he thought he could use that influence to get the Tsar to come back to him and ask forgiveness, it doesn't happen and the patriarch ends up spending the rest of his life in a monastery. And so I think that, you know, that incident in and of itself shows that probably the influence was greater coming from the court towards the patriarch than the other way around. And maybe, you know, as talented as the patriarch found himself, it may have been that, you know, he found himself you know, as the American saying goes, in the deep end and a little beyond his abilities in dealing with the court politics and court influence. Yeah, yeah, I think definitely you're onto something there. And yeah, I, I would definitely agree with you. And um, during this time uh, of this pre-reformed time and the relationship between Nikon and the Tsar, Nikon was actually doing a lot of work in Moscow itself. Uh, he rebuilt the, the Monovospasky Monastery after it had been damaged in the so-called Times of Troubles. Um, he erected a new cathedral at the monastery, which was very beautiful, beautiful lavish, and, and it actually impressed the elites very deeply, we read. Um, and what's interesting is all this, re- this construction and the effort to rebuild the new cathedral and build the new cathedral took actually less than two years, which by some was seen as a miracle from God. I think when we look back at it as historians, it's very clear that Nikon had state support and probably financial support from the state uh, because even today it's very hard to, to build a cathedral in two years. So uh, 400 years ago, I think we can quite, with, with, with big confidence say that that definitely he he was supported by by the state and, and his work which only elevated him in the eyes of the public even more so uh, and it was also there is during this time as an abbot of the Novospassky monastery that Nico started to participate as an active member in the party of people which you just mentioned before you called them the zealots correct correct Yes, yes. Uh, and this group was actually led by, by the confessor of the Tsar, Father Stefan, uh, priest Stefan Vonifatiev, 
probably I butchered that, excuse me. And, and it was also strongly supported at that time by the Tsar himself because of people in it were very close to the Tsar. Uh, another member of this group uh, that is important to be mentioned was, of course, the priest Avakum, the proto-priest Avakum, proto-pop Avakum, who would by some old believers later be glorified as a saint. Uh, so by all accounts, Nikon was, not, was now actually a Russian xenophobe at that point in his life that actually rather distrusted the Greeks and their books. This is what we read at least, uh, having thought that the Greeks had turned away from, from the pure faith. And this goes back to what we spoke before in the last episode, what I spoke myself about uh, the view on the Greeks uh, in, in Russia, in Muscovy, and questioning of their orthodoxy because of the, of the failed union of uh, Florence, uh, Council of Florence, which, which signed a failed, failed union. And also the fact that he was against, or maybe not against, but that he was questioning the Greeks at this point was actually an argument that would later be used by his opponents during and after the reforms that would point out that, look, you were on the correct path and then you switched your paths, uh, which is very interesting. Uh, the aim of this group, the zealots, as, as you called them, uh, was not to reform the rights as, as such, this is my understanding, but rather to Rather, they focus on getting on they, they focus on getting rid of abuses in the liturgy, uh, raising the moral standards of the clergy, education of the clergy, and actually to restore preaching uh, in churches, uh, uh, which in the beginning was the reading of the church fathers and the lives of the saints, rather than free preaching of, by the clergy as we know it today. Uh, so by all accounts, this group did not seek any changes in the books or in the right. However, they just wanted to 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 make sure that all abuses were were, were somehow get, that they got rid of all the abuses and 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 raise the moral standards and i mean i think we can see you know in our own day that even when there aren't problems with the books you know a given priest can engage in liturgical abuses within the context of celebrating the services. And so I think that the fact that we refer to both what the zealots of piety were looking for and what you know would later be done as reforms almost tries to put them on sort of an equal level when they're completely different things and so you know and i mean i think that that's something that we even see today is you know you can have people who make arguments for the need for changes based on oh well look at these things that are being done that need to be reformed and then go even farther you know, looking outside of orthodoxy, for example, you could look at Vatican II. And, you know, while there would doubtless have been things that needed to be reformed at that point, I think that most Catholics would say that what happened in the Council and after went too far. And so, you know, you can't talk of those as reforms on the same level, just like you can't talk about what's happening here on the same level. And 
I personally really wonder, going back to what we said a moment ago, that does the shift in the patriarch's views from his time now to the reforms really illustrate that influence of the court on him rather than the other way around? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and this is, here we actually read that the uh, the young Tsar, influenced by his confessor, Vonifiatiev, Father Stefan Vonifiatiev, had actually a different opinion about the Greeks and their orthodoxy. Uh, later, when we study, when we speak about the Tsar more in depth, we will learn that he was taught Greek and, and Greek philosophy. So he had a openness towards the Hellenic world, while people like Nikon, uh, Avakum, and others in this in this zealot group all had peasant roots, meaning that they were somehow naturally not as open towards foreign influences or even not so aware of these foreign influences because, you know, mostly the elites were the people who would who would engage with foreigners and, and foreign influences and even foreign literature. So Nikon, Avakum, and the others of this group at this point actually looked upon most things that were not from Russia or in Russia with suspicion. And I think that's natural uh, for the time. Uh, and, you know, something there is that when we look at the reforms, and we can go into this more in depth then, you know, part of the idea was that as much as we speak of Rus and Muscovy and Moscow as the third Rome, the idea at the time was that politically they were the third Rome. You didn't necessarily have the idea of the Patriarch of Moscow supplanting the Patriarch of Constantinople, however, and so you'll eventually have this idea of a relationship between the political third Rome and the ecclesiastical second Rome that I think is going to influence the Tsar and thus influence the reforms. Yeah, you're spot on there. And like I just mentioned, the Tsar was actually open towards the Greeks and he believed that they were Orthodox. We will examine that later when we speak about him. And it didn't take long for Nikon to actually agree with the Tsar, to change his mind and actually start to see the, the Greeks as being fully Orthodox. And seeing that being on the Tsar's good side brought him actually nothing but good fruits and was very beneficial for him personally and perhaps even for his monastery. Uh, I think it's easy to see why he would change his mind from a human perspective, right? Uh, you have the Tsar, who is de facto the head of both state and church, even though there is, of course, a patriarch, but the Tsar is very powerful. And, and I think it's, it's very human to just agree with him, <laughs> you know, not, not to be against him. Doesn't mean it's right, of course. But... And, and this event, the change of mind by Nikon, is by his opponents often another proof, they say, of the fact that he was hungry for power, for influence, and hungry for making a career within the church. And of course, they have a point. Uh, and this we must uh, acknowledge, I would say. And and so let's move on a bit further, because in, in 1649, just a few years before the reforms, Patriarch of Jerusalem, Paisios, actually visited Moscow and repeatedly, we read, repeatedly met with, with Nikon. 
Uh, now Mayendorf, who did uh, did a great study on this, which I think we recommended his book in one of the prior episodes. Uh, Mayendorf believes that this was done in cooperation with the Tsar to actually convince Nikon of the errors in the Russian books and that the superstition towards the Greeks was wrong. So, so we have this event of, of Patriarch Paisios of Jerusalem, which is, you know, the, the mother church of all churches, I would claim, spiritually, uh, coming and sitting down with Nikon on a few occasions uh, during his stay to basically convince him that, look, the Greeks have kept the orthodoxy. And of course, we say Jerusalem and Greeks because it's a Greek patriarchate. It's a Greek-speaking patriarchate. Uh, so, and this is, of course, especially evident as, as Nikon later lists Paisios as one of the bishops that brought the errors in the Russian books to his attention. Um, so I think uh, that very clearly shows us that he himself confirms this fact, that it was Paisios who was one of the influences on him through the Tsar, as Mayendorf would argue that it was on the order of the Tsar, so to speak. And very interestingly, the same year after the visit of Paisios, Nikon was actually consecrated Metropolitan of Novgorod. So it's almost like the patriarch visited, convinced him, and then the Tsar gave his green light for Nikon to become a bishop, a Metropolitan of Novgorod, which de facto made him the second highest bishop in Russia after the, the patriarch, who was also the, the bishop of, um, of Moscow, right? Uh, it was in Novgorod that Nikon's later reforms could be seen in smaller and limited fashions when he became a bishop there, meaning he already started to implement some elements of the later reforms as soon as he became bishop in Novgorod. For instance, he introduced uh, a Western-style polyphonic chanting. Polyphonic, yes, uh, polyphonic in English, polyphonic, polyphonic chanting. Polyphonic chanting, which was brought there, of course, sing from singers, uh, chanters from Kiev on his own personal order. So Nikon ordered the chanters from Kiev to come to Novgorod and establish this new Western style of chanting. In Novgorod, as he was in Moscow, Nikon became very popular. And in Novgorod, he actually became very popular for helping the poor people during the famine in 1650. He fed them and, and also he helped to calm down the revolt that was starting because of the higher prices of food. So this we all see in various chronicles from this time, not only theological sources, but even secular historical chronicles uh, that mention these things. Uh, so in other words, one can say that Nikon was actually doing quite a good job as the, as the Metropolitan of Novgorod and, and his administrative skills, which he demonstrated in Moscow and, and being an abbot, uh, made him very respected. And most of all, it made him trustworthy in the eyes of, of of not only the elites, but probably even the, the normal people. And I personally think that him being a metropolitan of Novgorod was a sort of a baptism of fire, so to say, before the Tsar made him a, a patriarch. Uh, well, what would you say about that? I think you're probably spot on with that in that, you know, he clearly, I think, with the meetings with the Patriarch of Jerusalem, Paisios, was being groomed to be the next Patriarch. And so whenever, you know, the Metropolitanate in Novgorod came open, it was sensible to put him there and then be able to use that as the logic of why he should then be made Patriarch of Moscow. 
Yeah, yeah, I think it's 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 clear. We see a pattern here, you know how how the Tsar elevated him firstly as an abbot of a archimandrite, an abbot of a famous monastery in Moscow, then to be the metropolitan of the second biggest and most important historically see of Rus, of which is Novgorod even up till today, a very famous place, and then of course what later would happen, we all know. And uh, in 19, again, 19, in 1652, pardon me, uh, Patriarch of, of Moscow, Joseph, passed away. And of course, Zico was one of the leading candidates for the position. Uh, the Tsar, however, had Nikon as his only favorite. So we read that there was not even any other candidate. Uh, something that it's very clear in the letter that he sent to Nikon. So this is a letter sent by Patriarch, excuse me, by the Tsar Alexei to Metropolitan at this time, Nikon, uh, after the death of Patriarch Joseph. In the letter to Nikon, uh, the Tsar calls him my beloved favorite, and he calls him, without you, I will do nothing. Uh, so I think it's very clear who the Tsar loved and relied upon to become the next patriarch. I think there's no doubt about that, especially quoting, uh, quoting this letter that he sent to him, which is quoted by Mayendorf. Um, so Nikon, of course, traveled to Moscow, and upon arrival, he was chosen patriarch. No surprise. On July 22nd, he was chosen patriarch by the church council. I would uh, claim that with strong influence of the Tsar. <laughs> Uh, but who am I to say? <laughs> um, and we read actually that Nikon had rejected at first, uh, but he had been uh, convinced by, you can guess who, by the Tsar himself. Uh, and therefore, three days later, on July 25th, Nikon was consecrated as Patriarch of Moscow and all Rus. And this is, of course, a historic event that would change the Russian church forever, regardless if one thinks it was a good change or a bad change, it would change the Russian church forever. And we will see in, in the future chapters, in the future discussions, in future, not discussions, episodes, forgive me, uh, why this event was important. Go on. And I think that, you know, it's also important that potentially after the reforms, and after we discuss the reforms, that we come back and sort of talk about the life of Patriarch Nikon after the reforms and consider some of the issues we've raised about the question of influence, etc., in light of what happens after the reforms. But that's probably best saved for another episode and for after we talk about the reforms yeah yeah i think i think definitely we'll go back to that subject and and speak about what you just mentioned i think it's of, of great importance and uh and just to acknowledge before we finish speaking about nikon is that any historical information about nikon is to some degree actually colored by how one views the reforms and this is very tricky and, and in my own study, it was very tricky for me to actually find a middle ground. And, and because if one truly reads old believer sources, he's, he's the worst thing that's ever happened to the church ever. He's like the arch heretic, basically. Um, well, if you read the pro-reform people, even people like uh, St. John Maximovich of San Francisco and Shanghai, who holds Nikon in a very high regard. So, so, so I think that 
we must remember this, uh, and also remember that any 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 good deeds done by D, by Nikon uh, would would have been elevated to miraculous status by his followers, uh, and any missteps he did, even if they were small, would of course be elevated to the biggest tragedy and ever ever by 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 the opponents of the reforms. And and uh, I just want us to point this humbly out that we are presenting. Uh, what we believe is a balanced historical account, but but it's definitely not the only one. And if you Google around, and if, especially if you speak Russian, you'll be able to found, find everything from Nikon's a saint to Nikon is the worst thing ever. So I think it's important for us to point that out. Absolutely, I agree. And uh, that's actually all I, I personally thought we would say about Nikon today is simply an overview of his life. And if you don't have anything to add, uh, I, we have one question as well, but please, if you have anything to add. I, I mean, I think, like I said, um, we should definitely return after discussing the reforms and talk about his later life in light of some of the things we've said. Um, but that's best done, I believe, in another episode. So, Yeah, I completely agree with you. And, and we have actually, we have one question um from from Benj Rav which is a, it's a question posed after the last episode which spoke about uh, uh about uh, third rome and the view on greeks in uh, in moscovy in moscow uh so he asked did the greeks were the greeks considered orthodox or not by moscovy at the time and he writes because even if florence was signed many people like saint marco vesuvius uh, rejected it and I think, as I said in the last episode, there was a suspicion towards the Greeks um, uh, concerning their orthodoxy because of of the fact that they had signed, not all of them, of course, but many of the bishops had signed the Union of Florence at the Council of Florence. And that made them suspicious in the eyes of, of, of Russia, of, of Moscovy. Uh, however, as Benj asks here that he's he's talking about if the Moscovites were still venerating Greek saints and that didn't change. It's not like, it's not like uh, just because they signed uh, the union at Florence that everything changed and was shifted upside down. It was, it was more like a suspicion and, and one was more careful with the Greeks. I would say personally, I don't think it was clear cut black and white. Now they're heretics. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, yeah, I would absolutely agree. And, you know, I think one of the things that he brought up in the question, for example, is St. Maxim the Greek, um, who, you know, is totally beloved among old believers. And so we see that, you know, he's definitely not rejected. So I think, like you said, it can't be a black and white issue of the Greeks are suddenly not orthodox, but there is a suspicion, a question of influence. You know, definitely the fall of Constantinople is seen as the judgment for the Union at the time. But even then, many Greeks viewed it the same way. So um, I think that, you know, it definitely isn't a clear-cut issue. Yeah. And it's also just important to remember that at this time, uh, Russia was rather xenophobic, as I said in the previous video. And 
they were actually afraid of everything that wasn't from from Russia, from Muscovy. So that wouldn't actually matter if it was Greek or Polish or or Muslim. It was it was just the times, and 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 it played very well into that. I I feel satisfied. If you feel satisfied, if you have I something do. to, then then we would like to thank you all for for tuning in and thank you all for for all the support that we that we get here with with all your views and and questions that you pose, and uh, we encourage anyone who has questions to just just write in the comment section because it enriches our discussion even if we don't maybe always know the answer perfectly clear we can still use it as a as a catalyst for a good discussion and and because we don't know everything but we also want to learn and so please share your thoughts questions and we would deeply appreciate that so justin thank you for tuning in it's spasi christos for having me and Thank you, and Spasi Christos. And it's—I just want to point out—it's very refreshing to record when it's it's daylight where I live. So I like this trend, but this means Justin had to wake up early. So, but I think well, it, it's nine a.m. here. So, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Okay, okay Justin. So. Thank you, uh, thank, thank you, Justin, and thank you all for listening. God bless you all, Spasi Christos, and uh, see you next time.